It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Political Football, the podcast that digs into the global political stories behind the sport. I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. And I'm Stephen Bush, special correspondent at The New Statesman. This is a special series devoted to the 2018 World Cup, and over the next few weeks we're going to be following all the action in Russia and analysing it with our guests. And I'm delighted to say that today we're joined by David Goldblatt, author of The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football. Okay, so it's the morning after the big night. England are in the quarterfinals. Stephen, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty elated. I'm feeling like football is coming home. I mean, one of the really surreal things about this tournament is essentially the first time in my remembered lifetime that I've unequivocally been able to like the England team. And the second is it's basically the first time since 2002 that watching the England team has not been, whether in victory or defeat, a painful and slightly ugly experience. And it's kind of continued that with the happy ending of Southgate kind of, you know, being able to get the monkey off his back of the missed penalty, uh, us ending our World Cup hoodoo hoodoo on on penalties. Weirdly, I felt quite relaxed throughout the penalty shootout, other than when Henderson walked up because his body was wrong. It felt like he was going to do a very tame penalty. So Henderson was taking the third English penalty, at which which point uh, Columbia were leading 3-2 in the shootout. Yeah, and I kind of thought, oh, your walk is is wrong. I can feel you're going to do... And then what he did then do, which is a very tame and telegraphed penalty, because um, in preparation for this, uh, and also because I'm just this cool, I looked back at all of the penalty shootout failures, right? And I actually think they fit into two distinct groups. The one in Italia 90 and in, 90, and in 1994, where all of the penalties, sorry, in Italia 90, and in 90, where they, they all do the right thing, right? Uh, even Pierce's missed penalty, he's trying to take the keeper out of the equation like Van Persie always used to do when he was our... So you're saying he's, he's hitting the ball high. He's hitting the ball high. And Colombia's missed penalty, uh, ditto, he was trying to take Pickford out of the equation. And I think there's a less shame in missing a penalty like that. Whereas... If you compare that to, say, England going out in Euro 2004, where the penalties are weak to the left, you know, they are they are penalties taken in fear. And these were, with the exception of Henderson, uh, very confident penalties from... So 2004 were the Euros in Portugal. In Portugal, yeah. um, Stephen, what is it that's 
likable about this squad? What is it that makes you feel more comfortable about this this group? I think it's a lot of things. I think one, it's partly the excellent uh, Players Tribune website, which kind of where where they're speaking about their lives and you know and. I mean, I will fully admit that I am a massive sucker for any story where it's like, oh, you know, I grew up without my dad and I want to do right by my mom. And anyone thinks it's like, I too, Raheem, know the pain. And it, and so I fully admit that I'm easily gulled by that kind of thing. But they also just seem like a nice bunch of people. They don't have a kind of hint of thuggery or sort of kind of flashiness to them. Um, and also, they just seem to be quite an affable side which works hard for one another um i can't remember someone uh tweeted said one of the things they liked most on football is when in is when uh, the striker puts a thumb up to a winger who's overhit the path so it's kind of like <laughs> i see you man you're trying don't you know don't let your head down and they just feel like a very nice team and southgate is of course such an articulate kind of um advocate for progressive football david in bristol you're you're down the line today are they likable what's going on well, first of all, there's no David Beckham and there's no John Terry. And there's simply no getting away for it that John Terry was the icon of all that is thuggish as a kind of convicted racist, certainly by the Football Association. Yeah. And David Beckham, you know, bless him, for all his dead ball skills, bought a kind of air of self-obsession and commercial savvy um, and, you know, wag and celebrity-related nonsense um, to the occasion that made the entire circus incredibly unlikable. Um, I think this is a young, humble team that looks like and um, feels like urban England. You know, I love it that we've got Harry Kane has got Irish roots. Deli Ali's father is Nigerian. Eric Dyer grew up in Portugal, but we've also got a bunch of kids from Yorkshire. You know, like a solid Yorkshire-Sheffield contingent as well. And I think that makes, you know, all of those things come together um, to make them visibly and personally so much more likeable. And I love, what I love about Gareth Southgate is that he will not bend to the false and ludicrous narratives and closed questions of the English football media. He's got his own line and his own take, and he simply will not be swayed by them. And I find that incredibly, incredibly likable. Yeah, David, you mentioned the you mentioned the diversity of the team. Yeah. Um, Southgate himself has said something very interesting about this. He says, we're a team with our diversity and our youth that represent modern England. In England, he continues, we have spent a bit of time being a bit lost as to what our modern identity is. I think as a team, we represent that modern identity and hopefully people can connect with us. That's a very significant statement from an England football manager, isn't it? It's an amazing statement and full and full of insight. I mean, I think we have struggled in the past to find an identity as an England team, indeed as an English nation, because we've been so consistently bound to the tropes of Britishness. Mm -hmm. I mean, having lived for 200 years inside the carapace of Britishness when facing the rest of the world, we have completely forgotten all the alternative non-imperial um, versions of Englishness that are available to us. And that's why the England national football team doing well is such an amazing cultural and politically protean moment. It's an opportunity to imagine an alternative kind of nation, not the English strike Britishness of the Brexiteers and of Wiltshire, you know. I've been thinking, I know this is crazy, but I've been thinking all morning of E.P. Thompson, 
speaking at the Glastonbury Festival in 1984. And it sent a shiver up my spine to watch it this morning when he said to the crowd, this has not only been a nation of money makers and imperialists, it's been a nation of inventors and writers, of theatres and musicians. And it is the alternative nation that I can see in front of me now. Now, it's not Glastonbury 19. 1984, but I feel a little hint of that. And, you know, so many people on the left run a mile when English nationalism or even patriotism rears its head and want to concede the ground, you know, to the imperialists, to the racists and the banal. Is it because they're fearful of of unleashing forces or demons that they that have been contained for so long? As you as you rightly say, since the Act of Union of 1707, there's been a desire for Englishness and Britishness to be interchangeable or coterminous in some way. Jason, it's been unleashed. What are they waiting for? I mean, what is Brexit if not the return of a kind of peculiarly antediluvian and ignorant version of English nationalism that cats out the bag? You know, it's like, what are you going to unleash? Stephen, what do you think? We're going to, what are we unleashing? What's going on here? I think yeah, the interesting thing, right, is Brexit is ultimately going to be a moment of a profound reduction of British slash English influence in in the wider world because we will either be significantly poorer and therefore weaker or a rule taker and therefore weaker. But in any case, uh, the kind of underpinning of, of Britain as a dominant globe, you know, kind of mid-sized power is going to take something of a hit. And so people will want to... Yeah, I think weirdly the the continuing power of say Boris Johnson is that people will want this sense of themselves being plucky and yeah and kind of all of that sort of stuff. The positive thing about uh, the England team is it can be a kind of model of a a different type of politics, partly because it does physically represent uh, the groups that you know the young, the ethnically diverse that were defeated in June twenty sixteen. Although of course the other thing about it, it is a team. For everyone, and it does unify people around an idea of Englishness that is not narrowly ethnic. Which, yeah, kind of, there's lots of interesting polling that lots of people do think of Britishness as a multiracial identity and Englishness as a monoracial. By which you mean a white ethnic yeah. identity. But this team offers the possibilities of a different kind of Englishness of the uh, of the kind that David was talking about. Are you, is David being too hopeful? And can you imagine had? Sam Allardyce remain manager, that we will be talking about the England team in the same way as we are today. I mean, candidly, I think if Sam Allardyce had been manager, we wouldn't have got out of the groups. We would have had <laughs> a grim 1-1 or 0-0 draw with Tunisia, where we would have failed to break them but down. You couldn't imagine Big Sam talking about diversity, the kind of things that Southgate's been talking about, which so, which has so impressed us, but also Ruth Davidson, the, Scot- the leader of the Scottish Tories, tweeted about um, Southgate's remark, how impressed she was by his humility, his wisdom. Are we, ge- are we going over the top, in other words? What's going on, David? Are we, are we overreacting here? On that, it's also his commitment to doing his homework. And yes. Trippier is the same when asked, you know, how come we broke the hoodoo? One word practice. And this is a version of Englishness that seems to me is precisely the opposite of the kind of flapping fool, upper class <laughs> fool version that Boris Johnson represents, yes. where you can just get away with anything, where you know you don't need to practice, where your multiple layers of inherited and unacknowledged privilege somehow means that you can, you know, bend the world to your will without actually putting some work in. And you know, the state of the Brexit negotiations demonstrate where that goes and doing your homework and doing 
doing your practice. That's what Gareth Southgate well, that is. That is the whole Johnson shtick, isn't it? Effortless superiority. That's 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 meant to be what he what he offers us, yeah. Absolutely, and that's a particular, you know, that that version of Englishness is one born of the public school sporting cultures of the late nineteenth century, where it was seen as bad form to practice or train too hard. And look where so, that gets us. So amateurism, the, the the ideals of amateurs. But 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 David, what I like, what what we what we're seeing in Southgate's England is a is a team with a system and a structure. And you could see even at the end when they were exhausted, they were still holding to the structure of the team. Compare that with the sort of the chaos of Roy Hodgson's England, for example. Yeah, I mean, just the simplicity of saying, right, this is what we're going to do. Everybody goes with it. Don't fiddle around too much. I mean, particularly, you know, for an international team where you really haven't got a lot of time to get it together. And I think this tournament has proved that, you know, teams that can manage a modicum of personal chemistry as well as on-field discipline will will beat out those with the superstars who are not organised. Has it helped that Southgate's worked for the under-21s? He's been committed to this project that the FA has had to nurture nurture younger younger players from the from the under-17s, under-18s, under-19s into the into the under-21s and then into the senior team. I think it has, and I think the key word, Jason, is nurture. I really like that about Gareth Southgate is that he is genuine. There's a degree of you know personal empathy and commitment to his players that he's not about barking and giving orders. He's not even about you know a sort of techno wizard. It's a multifaceted, as all educational and kind of managerial processes that work are that you know relies on empathetic emotion. Genuinely want to nurture and grow someone. Give them space to screw up sometimes as well you know i certainly i don't know about you but that's how parenting and nurturing and education generally works and we have kind of you know in something in public life actually often forgotten that and i love it that there's someone with that philosophy nurturing these kids Stephen, is there, are there any particular players that you're impressed by in, in the england setup but they're not a they're not an exceptional side they play with good technique They've done well to make the quarterfinal. Yeah, so I think Lingard is my my favourite player. Uh, far it was quiet last night, I thought. But he still had some wonderful passing passing moves, and he was unlucky not to create uh, to create create more. I mean, in some ways, Lingard is the um, is both the fulcrum and the frustration of this England team. And his approach play is wonderful. He's at the centre of all of England's best and most fluent moves, but. At the moment, his Zen product is not what we would ideally wish. Although, of course, he is—he's still very young. Um, I think partly because my favourite—I mean, the best part of football is—is—is is, is, you know not kind of the pass in the kind of quite arid way that sort of late period Spain have become, but the kind of final you know the the defence bidding pass or the pass which allowed uh, Belgium to to get that very late goal against um, Japan, where yeah that kind of as David Winner says you know suddenly the pitches open and wide a miracle stunning goal stunning yeah goal. it was a, um and i think lingard has to be my favorite for that reason my worry david is um where the goals are coming from if harry kane isn't scoring and also we've done very well from set pieces um what three of harry's goals have been penalties the fourth goal was a sort of inadvertent flick off his um heel and then a couple of sort of tap-ins from close range i mean where, where are the goals going to come from other than kane 
Can I say, what a great worry to have, though. <laughs> Let's just, like, put this in perspective. Quite, quite. You know, it's like here we are in a quarterfinal of the World Cup, um, you know, facing the winner of Croatia, Russia, if we go through an extraordinary opportunity. And, you know, we've got Harry Kane. So it, we could have worse problems. I mean, I think, as, um, as John said, you know, the midfield and... God, I'd so love to see Raheem Sterling, you know, score a goal, a goal stick a goal. it down Piers Morgan's throat. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine actually a better, a better thing. So, I think um, you're right, though. Jesse Lingard and Deli Ali, who I want to be my favourite player, but who has simply not been, you know, been on it enough to uh, to be that. A little spark of creativity. Um, there that we saw in the early moments of the Tunisia game. We're going to have to find a little bit more of that. Yes. Um, who's going to yes. be on the end of it? Uh, that's another That's another matter. But I think we're going to need to find some energies there to break down a team like Sweden, who are, you know, as disciplined as you like. I mean, it's they going really to be like... They came through the group system. France were in their groups. They knocked out the Netherlands. Then they took down Italy in the playoffs. I mean, they're a very hard team to break down, very well organised. To break down. I only well lost to Germany but, in the final seconds to a kind of miracle, a miracle free kick by Tony Cruz. So, and then beat Mexico three 0 They're a dangerous side, Sweden. Absolutely. I'm sort of thinking, you know, it's slightly, you know, uh, an under par Tottenham placing facing a very kind of cheated up Huddersfield in the Premiership. <laughs> Going to be very, very difficult to break them down. I, to be honest, I'm kind of relying on Harry Kane. I think that is where it's going to come from. And David, before we, I think we should talk about Belgium and, and how good are the golden generation, but why are the left so uncomfortable with patriotism? <laughs> you know, how long have you got? Um, and why is it, you know, what's, what's, what's going on? You know, the, you know, the left in part, I mean, certainly the contemporary left have themselves been unable to disengage Britishness and Englishness. I mean, of course, the left's greatest moment in this country is 1945 to 1951. And it is the creation not of an English welfare state, but of a British welfare state with all of, you know, the NHS, you know, British steel, British coal, you know, the nationalization of the of these industries. That was the core of, um, of, you know, the left's finest moment. And in so doing, I think we managed, like the right, to forget about the separation and the distinctiveness of, of um, Britishness and Englishness. And when we were required, finally, in the 1990s, after the Scots and the Welsh made it very clear that this party couldn't go on forever, that we had to reconsider English nationalism, we had completely ceded the field to the racists and the fringe. And there was a desperate desperate lack of intellectual creativity and historical knowledge within the new Labour project, because it's not like alternative versions of English nationalism and identity hadn't been outlined in the work of people like E.P. Thompson, um, you know, George Ruday, uh, Raf Samuels. I mean, there's a whole kind of alternative agenda there that we could have explored. And it's one of the great failings of the new Labour project that we didn't go there and we reap, we reap that What now. about Corbynism? Why is Corbyn seemingly so uncomfortable with English patriotism when when and I'll come on to Stephen but first you David because Corbyn seems to me to be an international socialist so the causes that most animate him are foreign affairs um, the United Ireland Palestinian liberation anti-Americanism anti-imperialism and he seems deeply uncomfortable with Englishness even though in many ways he's a quintessentially English figure with his interest in allotments and marmalade 
and train timetables and manhole covers. Now, he's an English eccentric of a kind Orwell would have enjoyed and recognised, but he seems deeply uncomfortable. I agree. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, that would go for quite a lot of that, of certainly the older part of uh, of the Corbyn constituency. And I think it's uh, partly because we've just failed to think it through and we haven't had the intellectual and the cultural imagination to do better. I mean, in part, I think, because the most traditional parts of the Labour left have um, failed to engage with popular culture um, as a real terrain of political conflict. You know, um, he may like Arsenal, um, but I never get the sense that the Corbynites really understand that popular culture um, has become one of the central domains in which, you know, identities, meanings and alternative identities and meanings are going to be made. This is not the stuff of kind of, you know, backroom momentum conversations or even kind of leftist conferences. This is something that's out there and they don't have the language and the instincts, I think, to engage. Okay, Steve, but Stephen, wasn't Blairism also, or Blair, didn't that coincide with the cult of Cool Britannia, Britpop? Didn't, didn't Blair understand popular culture in, in the way that David is saying? I don't know. I think this, one of the reasons why New Labour struggled to, with Englishness is you had an MP from the north of England, but who, was, who had a British identity because he was both Scottish and British. And then you had as his successor a prime minister who was Scottish at a point where because of the result of the uh, of the 20, 2005 election, yes, quite a big majority, but a majority which in which England was ruled by the Welsh and the, the Scots, where that became more of a pain point for uh, for New Labour. I must say, I actually don't think that um, Englishness is something that the kind of Corbyn inner circle struggles with, you know, particularly that kind of young um, kind of media outrider, you know, Matt Zab cousin, Aaron Bastani, and in fact, the the kind of um, vocabulary and sort of um, clannishness, and one of the ways that they kind of build this sense, and it's an exciting project, is very much like talking to ultras um, in a, a football team. And of course, exactly as you say, Corbyn is an English archetype in a way that I can't really think of a Labour leader since Wilson, who's quite so... Well, I don't think Corbyn Jeremy does it consciously in the same way, but I w- was in St Ives last week, obviously, we did some walking, and I reflect on the fact whenever I go on a long walk in England, I pass and nod at someone who who could be, who sounds and looks like Corbyn. Everyone who's gone to a non-league game has talked to someone like like Corbyn. And he kind of... I think one of the interesting things, although his generation of politics is less... Well, it, it, he is of the generation where British, you know, grew up with Britishness and Englishness as coterminous. But, he... but he's able, I think, to to oversee a more English-facing discussion because he is so English himself. There's a radical tradition that Corbyn associates himself with: the, the Levellers, the Chartists, CND. And you're right; he's the kind of guy who would have been on ban the bomb marches, anti-imperialist um, marches. But what is it about Corbyn and the flag? Is it because he's an anti-imperialist that he's uncomfortable with the ideas of the old British state, as it were? Well, I think it's also it is primarily a generational uh, thing, right? The because for yeah, and we talked about this uh, in a couple of weeks ago, right? Then because up until the nineties, the English team waved the British flag. The English flag uh, for a lot of people who've you know been on marches against the far right is something the far only the far right. Uh, waves. Although, of course, you know, Jeremy has watched both of the games. He is genuinely into it in a way that, you know, not every politician who claims to follow football 
is. And Theresa May is a cricket fan, isn't she? Theresa May is a cricket fan, yeah. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. David, let's talk about the um, the Belgium's golden generation. They're in the quarterfinals against Brazil. One of the theories I've put, at least, it's, it's probably wrong, that the reason Belgium has struggled as a football team is because Belgium itself is a fractured pseudo-state. But this group of players erratically coached by Martinez, um, admittedly, seemed to have got something together. What, what, what do you think? I mean, I think that the nature of Belgium uh, and of past Belgian teams reflected the subdivision into Walloons and the Flemish. And certainly past teams have struggled with and the press has struggled with who's in, who's out, what are the cliques and so on. However, there is a third dimension uh, to Belgian politics, which is, of course, Brussels, which is a self-governing region within Belgium, separate from both Wallonia and uh, the Flemish-speaking zone. And this is the team, I think, of Brussels. Brussels, one of the (laughs) most multicultural uh, cities um, in in Europe, where, you know, the uh, African, North African, Uh, and other French-speaking migrants have all come. They don't go, you know, they're not in, uh, I don't know, in Ostend. They're in in Brussels. You know, Romelu Lukaku grows up in in a migrant ghetto in Brussels. So I wonder whether this team actually does reflect a real identity and can collectively draw on a whole bunch of shared experiences and meanings, because in the end, it's from Brussels rather than Belgium as a whole. Does Vincent Company have Congolese um, heritage? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I understand that the Martinez is speaking to the squad in English um, rather than in Dutch or French. I don't think Martinez speaks very good French, uh, but they're they're communicating with one another in English, which is, I think, very interesting, David. That's, I mean, you know, as so often, so much of EU business, and I suspect even after Britain has left the European Union, will be conducted in English. I mean, hands down, we know English is 
the global lingua, lingua franca, not merely in football, but, you know, in the arts, in politics, in business, in science. So, um, you know, add to that the centrality of the Premier League in, uh, in, in global football and in many of the people in that team, Martinez himself, no wonder. Stephen, do you like this Belgium team? Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with the characterization that it, weirdly, what they and France have in common is it's a great team with a coach that I would not describe as that great. And mm. it feels like this interesting conflict between can the quality of the of the players win out against uh, the, the management structure. Japan were kind of the reverse, not a team blessed with great players, but they had a good system. They played it along the floor and they played well to their strengths and they did very nearly get to extra time. I think that point about them being a team located around the culture of Brussels is is is, is very apposite. Again, to uh, harp on about the Players' Tribune, Lukaku in his very good piece about um, about his growing up says, "Yeah, yeah." So he go, "Yeah, kind of." Well, of course, I'm I'm Belgian and I'm from this place. That's what makes Belgium cool, right? Which is what makes Brussels cool. Um, you know, the bit around, other than the quite ugly bit where where the government government sits, but um. It will be interesting to see how well uh, that team can do when they come up against people who are as good as them technically and are as well managed. By which you mean Brazil? Yeah, Brazil uh, or France. Well, so I think France have got the same problem. But yeah, I think against Brazil, you have another team which is technically uh, adept, but is also a better collective. And uh, I think the problem is, is an I, you know, I mean, Martinez... I don't think is a great uh, a great coach. And there are, um, I understand that there are problems inside the squad, some resistance to Martinez in particular. And at one point in that Japanese game in the second half, when the Japanese went 2-0 up and they played with extraordinary intensity and energy, Martinez was standing on the touchline looking utterly bewildered, although the substitutions were quite smart. He threw in Fellaini. They got a goal back with the header. And then the astonishing end to that match, when the Japanese, to their credit, were trying to win the game, they had, a, they had a direct free kick, I think, from Honda. Tipped round for a corner. The corner came in. Courtois caught the ball. And what, in less than a minute? Just over a minute, less, they'd scored. Yeah, with essentially the last kick of the game. And that was, um, yeah, I think, weirdly, I think the, the, the moment I learned the most about uh, football was at university when I was covering the university team. Because when you see good profe- good amateurs, you really appreciate how smart good professionals are. Because Lukaku has essentially a second there to decide whether or not to let the ball run on, as he correctly does, or to take it on. He Instead, he lets it run on. It splits so he dummies, the event. He dummies. He, he dummies. He splits it. And he has, I mean, you know... That is the amount of time it would take me to, you know, kind of if I threw a packet of rice at you in a supermarket, if you just think about what you were going to do. Most of us wouldn't do it. It was a a beautiful final goal, even though Japan's defeat has ended any hope I have of not finishing bottom in the parliamentary press gallery. (laughs) Perhaps come on to that at the end. David, you wanted to talk about the forthcoming Croatia-Russian game, which throws up all sorts of interesting political tensions. I mean, I think it's first and foremost, you know, the World Cup's in Russia. Russia's in the quarterfinals. You know, this is an this this will have extraordinary cultural and social ripples through the nation that will be fascinating to see. I think the first thing to say is is Putin going to show up? You know, he showed up for Saudi Arabia because he knew Russia were going to do okay, but he hasn't shown up subsequently, and I wonder whether he will show his face. Um, the second thing that intrigues me is that there's quite a bit of needle between Croatia and Russia, certainly after the um, the poisoning episode in Salisbury earlier this year. One of the countries most assiduous in uh, expelling Russian diplomats was Croatia. And, of course, 
the um, the Russians are the uh, the biggest allies and supporters of the Serbs in their many conflicts uh, at many levels with the Croats and you know Serbs have uh, and Russians have been singing together in the streets of Moscow. So I don't quite know how that will play out on the pitch, but I'm interested to see how it plays out around it. And Boris Johnson, before the tournament, said that Putin was going to use this World Cup as Hitler used the 1936 Olympics um, for displays of um, aggressive posturing and nationalistic propaganda. We haven't seen that, have we? No, we haven't. I mean, I, you know, as ever, Boris, you know, masquerades as a historian without actually having the faintest idea or, you know, the merest nuance of understanding about either of these occasions. I mean, clearly, 1936 was a sort of systematic attempt with a kind of steel-hard ideology to use the sporting specular, spectacular to, you know, say something about Aryan domination and racist theories and the rest of it. This is about dissimulation. This is about, you know, this is not about the manipulation of consciousness. This is about the fragmentation of consciousness as far as Vladimir Putin is concerned. This is about distraction. It's not about it's not about showing off an ideological position. So I think in that sense, having had the most exciting World Cup on the pitch that I can certainly remember, he must be very, very well pleased. And he's got the country, as I understand, on lockdown. I mean, there's no protests um, allowed during the duration of the tournament. Um, the, hooligan, the hooligans have disappeared, the Russian hooligans. That's the brilliance of Putin. He has allowed protests, but in non-World Cup cities. So you right, have a okay. small okay. number of um, protests allowed, I think 20 actually, over pension reform. I mean, again, the genius of the man. <laughs> when do you announce that you're going to raise the uh, pensionable age in Russia? Quite considerably, by eight years for women, I think, and by three or four for men. You do it on the opening day of the tournament, and then you allow the protests in non-World Cup cities. And even better, you police them with the same soft touch version that you're doing in the World Cup cities. But this will not last. No, it will not last. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an autocratic regime. David, I always ask uh, my guests, and I haven't had many, I make it sound as if we've had hundreds, but um, who's going to win? Is, is your tip still in the tournament or have they have, have they gone out? David Winner had Spain and they've gone. Um, John Bew had the French and the French uh, are still with us. Stephen, what was your tip? Uh, can I change mine? Mine was France, but I, I want to change. So you you had France originally. Who is it now? I I think I'm going to go with the the crazy Croatia bet. Croatia to win the tournament. So you mean to win the whole tournament? To win the tournament. I think other than other than against you know a very well well organised uh, uh, Denmark side, they've they have been the team of the tournament so far. Excellent in in a actually very tough group. Uh, they look very fluent. They've clearly got mental strength, as shown by um, Modric coming back to score a penalty in the shootout. I just think they've got quality all over the pitch. And I think uh, uh, I think that, that quite limited, yes, well-drilled, but quite limited Russia side is going to struggle unless they can get a friend from, you know, someone to help them. What about you? What about you, David? Well, the head is uh, still where it was at the beginning of the tournament with my um, £20 each way bet on France. Um, And if it's flight of fancy time, I mean, Croatia is too sensible a choice. So I'm going to go with the usual level of unreasonable optimism that England uh, often inspire me (laughs) and say England. Not Uruguay? 
Oh, bless, I'd love Uruguay, the first country in the world to legalize marijuana, the most successful <laughs> leftist project in Latin America, where the Frente Ampio are, you know, 15 years into a hegemonic transformation of Uruguayan society. I love them. The sun shines. But, you know, I've got 20 quid on France, man. <laughs> but Bilic, the, um, the Croatian and, and commentator, said of Uruguay, they've got two brilliant forwards, Suarez and Cavani. They've got Godin at the back. He said those in between them are okay. It's enough. Is it enough for Uruguay? I actually think France are going to beat them. I don't okay. think it is. I want to I wanna believe, but, um, but yeah, the money's... I'm not laying off my bet on France, put it that way. And Stephen, to conclude, how are you doing in the in the lobby competition? So pretty badly, in truth. Uh, I, I'm outside the bottom three. I'm clearly not going to win it. I'm now arming and arming about whether or not I want to avoid last place or if at this point it's better to how many are burn in out. It? There are 220 people in it. So journalists who work at Parliament. Journalists, a couple of MPs who we're not allowed to name because obviously they want to be embarrassed by uh, their, I mean, one of them might win it, so they, I imagine, will start broadcasting that all over town. But um, and then some staffers, and then a family of people who who work in the press gallery. Uh, thankfully, I have no family who are interested in football. Otherwise, I would be even further down the league. I'm sure. Stephen, welcome back from Cornwall. Good to have you on the program, David. Great pleasure to have you. The ball is round. The global history of football. Hope maybe have you on again at some point. You've been listening to Political Football, and I'm Jason Cowley, editor of the New Statesman. Thanks for listening to Political Football. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, you can send us your questions and comments for future episodes via Twitter. I'm on at Stephen KB and Jason is at Jason Cowley NS. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.